newly acquired relationships with industry leaders like Nike, Rogue Fitness, Oakley, Perform Better, and several others are moving performance rehab and strength training in the right direction when it comes to making a difference in the sports performance industry. If you're looking for the latest sports performance equipment and or apparel, follow the link to the affiliates tab on my website in the show details for all featured promotions. If you'd like details on additional offers, contact me directly through any of my social media outlets or the email listed on my website. As always, thanks for listening. What's going on, everyone? And thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Performance Rehab and Strength Training Podcast. Today, I sit down with Cincinnati Reds minor league rehab coordinator, Will Gilmore. Will and I are talking about hamstring health and maintenance and the protocols that he uses with his athletes, both as a strength coach and rehab coordinator, to maintain hamstring health and to reduce reoccurrence rates in injured athletes. If you like this episode, please follow the podcast and leave a review. You can find my content on Instagram and Twitter, where my handle is PRST underscore PT. You can check out my Facebook page, Performance Rehabilitation and Strength Training, where the handle is PRSTPT, and you can check out my website, agprst.weebly.com. I hope you enjoy the episode. Performance Rehabilitation and Strength Training Podcast provides a platform for some of sports medicine's most influential individuals to collaborate. Tune in as some of the field's most well-renowned rehabilitation professionals, strength and conditioning coaches, and athletes come together to discuss the integrated world of performance physical therapy and strength and conditioning. Welcome to another episode of the Performance Rehab and Strength Training Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Jett, and today I'm sitting down with Cincinnati Reds Minor League Rehab Coordinator, Will Gailmore. Will, good to see you, bro. Hey, Alex. How's it going, man? Uh, So before we dive into hamstring health and maintenance, do you mind giving the listeners a short history about yourself? Yeah, so right now is my first year with the Reds. Spent the last five seasons as a minor league strength coach with the Kansas City Royals. And before that, played baseball myself in college. Did a little coaching in high school, junior college, before I got into the training side of things. And it's kind of where I've been ever since. Yeah, and you did a lot of work internationally as well when you were with Kansas City, correct? That's true. Uh, uh, for two two years, I worked for MLB, part of their international development team. I had... Uh, up to six months between France, Sweden, and Brazil, um, going to each of their academies and working with their 18 and under teams, helping to develop their coaches as well as their players. Nice, man. That's awesome. All right. So the topic for today, hamstring health and maintenance. So just before we get into really the meat and potatoes of it, can you just give an overview of hamstring function and the role that it plays in baseball? Yeah. So um, I guess you could say that if you have a good and healthy hamstring, you're really not going to notice it. If you got one that's acting up, probably going to be your worst enemy. But in terms of baseball, hamstrings are going to be a main driver in your overall speed. So running down first base, and they also play a big part in the deceleration. So when those guys hit the bag and they're trying to chop their steps, that's actually where we see a decent amount of hamstring strains as well. And then one that you wouldn't normally think about would be pitchers on their land leg when they're delivering the ball to home plate. So what we've actually been seeing a lot recently with new force plate data is that that front leg and its ability to pull back into the body um, while they're delivering the ball actually generates most of the velocity for a pitcher. I've never heard that. We've never guessed that. Yeah, it's, it's counterintuitive. Everyone thinks it's the back, back leg. But when you slow down a delivery on video, you can see right before that front foot hits, a lot of guys actually end up pulling back an inch or two with that front foot. 
and they're fully contracting that hamstring, which allows them to really get that fulcrum effect and launch that ball forward. All right, so you touched on what the hamstring should be able to do in the game of baseball, both accelerate and decelerate. How prevalent are hamstring injuries in your experience and in your time as being a strength coach? So in actually all of professional sports, hamstrings are the most common injury we see. In baseball, that's no different. A lot of people might think it's elbows or shoulders, but hamstrings are actually number one. When I tell you it's it's 7% of all injuries in baseball, that doesn't sound like a lot, but it's significantly higher than everything else. And like we said, it can be position players as well as, as well as pitchers. A lot of the times, it's really guys running down to first base. So that's 60% of those injuries are running to first. And then 40% of all injuries actually happen in the first two months of the season in April and May. But there's a lot of different thoughts on why that is. Uh, maybe it's the weather. Maybe it's the spike in training load. But it's definitely not only guys that are running fast. Yeah, that's interesting to think about. Is there really anything, I guess there's not really anything you can hang your hat on as to why either at this point, correct? Right. Everyone's trying to figure out what that is. And the research shows that there's really three main risk factors. The first one being previous injury. If you've had a hamstring injury, you're 60% more likely to re-injure that hamstring. So the best way to not get hurt is to not get hurt in the first place. (laughs) do Do your prehab. The other two risk factors, is one is age. The older you are, the more at risk you are. And then the third one is low levels of eccentric strength. If your hamstring is not strong at that end range of motion, you're vastly more likely to get injured, especially when you reach for that bag at first and you overextend. If you're not strong there, pop. That's when you get it. And that makes sense because we know that we can tolerate a lot more loads eccentrically. So that makes perfect sense. If you're weak eccentrically, you're setting yourself up. So you said that they're most prevalent within the first two months of the season. You kind of touched on maybe why you think that is, but does it have anything to do with being, in a sense, deconditioned because it's so early in the season? Yeah, I think that's definitely a good take on it. You know, it's really hard to play and train at game uh, really to train at, at, at game speeds during the off season. That's why we have a spring training um, is because it's just not the same when you're doing it in your backyard or you're running sprints in the park. And then once you get into the season, you're trying to beat out a double play ball. It's just different. So yeah, April and May one, like, you know, being in Wilmington, it's cold Ooh. in those first months of the season, 40, 50 degrees. Guys are standing around a lot in the outfield and then they hit a ball to lead off the inning. They're not warm. And if they haven't been doing a lot of running and those hamstrings haven't built up the tolerant and the volume, then yeah, you're looking at a bad combination right there. Yeah, a hundred percent agree with that. And you're standing around for a while. All of a sudden you have to run, you have to pinch hit late in the game after you've been on the bench for a while. Not, not the most optimal time to try and produce maximal force with any muscle. So the 60% re-injury rate, managing that guy throughout the season, let's say it's a grade one strain. He doesn't have to go back to the complex to, to rehab. It's not that severe. What are some things that, between you and the athletic training staff that you, that you try and do to manage that injury and, and keep that guy or get that guy back on the field, but keep him there? Yeah, so... A guy gets injured the next day, day one, uh, we're doing stuff with him. So uh, depending on how bad the strain is, he's in there uh, getting tested by the the athletic trainers. And after that, we might be loading him on some BFR cuffs and putting him on the bike and getting some blood flow um, going, trying to get some nutrients into those tissues, keep him going. But um, once he kind of progresses from that, we're going to get him back running again. We're going to get him on a Nordic hamstring program. Uh, and, and for the rest of the year, he's going to be doing that, especially and we have everyone doing it. But guys that are hurt, 
it's going to be a two time a week thing as well as making sure that they're maintaining their, their sprints outside before games. That's tough because you're playing with the, the tissue healing rates, but you also want to load that tissue. Don't let it get deconditioned, but you also need to keep it at a certain level to perform. So you're definitely walking a fine line with all of that, especially during the season. Yeah. One of the, the things that's come out in recent research too is if you've heard of a, a visual analog scale, it runs on a, on a one to 10 scale, it's pretty much a pain scale. And what they've found is that in hamstring injuries, if you're under a four, then you can keep progressing. Um, so if we're having a guy and he's a, he's a two or three on pain that day, that's actually okay. Um, he's going to keep building strength. It might not feel good, but we can still build strength. And then as soon as you get over that four or five mark, that's when we're like, okay, we got to shut you down for a little bit. That's a good point. It gives you some objective data, but I just know from experience, the VAS, it is very subjective in nature in regard to your guy. So how much do you say, all right, you're, you're reporting a four or five, you know, how, how much do you take into account that, you know, your relationship with that athlete and knowing, are you really at a four or a five? Because some other guy might be at a one or a two. So how much of that do you have to work around? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's definitely a factor. And, and having heard your podcast with Justin Hahn, he, he talked about this a little bit. But at the end of the day, you got to know your athletes too. You got to know the type of guy, the personality that you're talking to. Is this your, you know, all-American college player from Texas who's a grinder and he's just been eating barbells his whole life? So, you know, he's, he's going to tell you it's a two when really for most guys, it's probably a, a four or five. Yeah. Or is he, you know, a little bit softer? He's, he's kind of been the, uh, the prima donna his whole life. And, you know, one thing hurts and, it, and it's the end of the world. So it really comes down to knowing your guys. In, in regard to your hamstring protocols, you mentioned the Nordic hamstring, which that's the bread and butter for, for training the eccentric strength. So aside from your Nordic hamstring protocol, what other bread and butter movements do you like to prescribe? And do those vary based off the time of the season, whether it's in season or out of season? I'll, I'll progress um, guys through the off season, through your traditional posterior lower body movements, um, start guys with, with RDLs, progress them to a single leg RDL, barbell or dumbbells. We do a lot of eccentric hamstring work um, on a physio ball or a hamstring cart, making sure guys are running. That's one of the best hamstring exercises right there. And then in terms of in season, we really do like to see guys doing Nordics once a week. But at the same time, I've had guys who are like, hey, man, like, I'm gassed. It's August. I'm not feeling these. Can I do something else? And so at that point, you know, even something like a, a kettlebell swing or a band pull through, put them on a, on a hamstring cart or some sliders and just do some eccentrics that way. That's still, is, it's not the exact same, but we're at least getting that, that eccentric framework and stretching the hamstrings out a little bit. Yeah, that's a good point to make is you have a, a regression to everything you do just for that reason, especially in August. It's been such a grind for so long. So that's just a really good point to make is you can still work on that eccentric loading and whatever pattern to, for the posterior chain strength. For any coach that may be listening to this, it's very important to have those regressions where you can still train those patterns and those muscles in maybe a less intense way. What's not been shown in the research yet, just because it hasn't been looked at, is using RDLs and single leg RDLs in an eccentric manner. So overloading them at the top, like a single leg RDL, overload it at the top, go down with one foot, put the other leg down, stand up with two. There you go. Again, you're going you're gonna to overload that tissue, and it's going to be easier on the way up. Now it's not the sexy Nordic hamstring curl that everyone talks about, but it's got a chance of being just as effective. Championships 
That's what's sexy. The Nordic hamstring curl is just a piece of that championship. So we're loading the tissues. We're, we're getting them to a level where, you know, guys can perform at their highest, stay on the field. But how do you go about working in recovery within the model, within your, like, within your maintenance model? Yeah, hamstrings are tough when it comes to that. Really, it could be as, as big as giving a guy a day off from playing. Tracking how much he's actually running during the week. So if we're, we're talking about baseball players, how many sprints is he getting in a night? Sometimes he could be in a slump and he's not getting in any sprints. Other times, you know, he's a center fielder. The, the pitcher's getting shelled and he's been running balls down in the gap all night. So really one of the things we like to do is get guys after games, just right into a cold tub. Nutrition is really big. Making sure they're getting electrolytes in during the day, uh, drinking enough water. Um, sleep is huge. Uh, we've seen anecdotally, we've seen guys who aren't getting enough sleep or maybe are going out and doing a doing a little partying at night coming in the next day and all of a sudden you got a little hamstring tweak uh, it could be a combination of lack of sleep fatigue and, and dehydration really just the basics of of all those three is going to help keep you healthy yeah the recovery is just as important if not more important than the work you're putting in because without the recovery with without being at that optimal level to, to function how you need to you can't perform anywhere. You, all right, so now in regard to the surface that you're training on, right? You want to mimic the environment they're going to have to play on and perform on. But do you notice a difference maybe in the surface that guys are doing their sprints on or the footwear? Like, are they in their cleats? Are they in, in their soft shoes? So maybe go into that a little bit on what maybe what the research says or what you like to do in regard to that. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to be said for, for training what you're going to play in or training in what you're going to play in. So we do have a lot of guys who will come into the gym in their super soft shoes, their Adidas Boost or their, their Under Armors, and they're slipping and sliding, and they can't get good acceleration because they're coming out of their shoes. So we do take guys out to the grass and do a lot of our sprint work and agility work out there. And then part of our, our return to play protocol for running is actually getting guys on the bases, putting them in that exact same environment that they're going to be in, putting them in game situations where they have to react. They don't know what's coming. That makes a big difference and more game-like, and it just makes the body react more athletically. There's no better way to get back into the game than by training or putting them in, in as much of a realistic environment to prepare for those demands. And I'm assuming that that protocol, is that kind of what we touched on earlier with the, with the Nordics and the RDLs and all the weight training as well? Just managing the load and volume, recovery, all that? Oh, yeah, exactly. That's all built in there. Uh, I mean, we, that's what we've been working on as a, uh, as a rehab staff during this. The shutdown is refining all of our, our return to play protocols. And so we've got it all the way down from, hey, this guy's got a lower leg injury. We, we've got him on a bike to all the way back to running 90s and doubles and sliding into second, sliding into home. Do you have a sports science guy on staff? We do. Uh, he does a lot of our force plate testing, like the blast motion. Okay. So he's more of like the on-field tech, more so than in the gym. But he's involved is kind of what I'm getting at with, with, the, uh, with your return to play protocol? Somewhat, yeah. Now, in regard to foot intrinsics or just foot strength, do you think that that plays a role potentially? If a guy, you know, if you're looking at the mechanics of the foot, maybe he's overpronated or oversupinated, whatever the case may be, is there anything in the research or maybe anything that you've seen where that can be a potential precursor to injury? Yeah, so this is an area that I'm not too well versed in. Um, I have done a little bit of reading and I've, I've heard some podcasts where people are talking about the role of the foot. Now I know with one of one or two of my guys in the past that I've had hamstring problems, you take their, their shoes off and they have extremely flat feet. And I, I think that plays into it somewhat, having a very soft foot um, that's not very strong, that, that drooping arch. 
I think that can definitely play into it. The feet are our our foundation. It starts from there. So everything we do is from the ground up. And if if you've got a poor foundation, that's just going to go up the chain somewhere. Couldn't say it any better. It's if if you're receiving force suboptimally at the ground, you're going to find you follow the breadcrumbs. You're going to find a problem up the chain somewhere. I hear a lot about that more so with like, with, with females and the, the genuvalgum and some of the ACL, more ACL-related injuries, the foot intrinsics play a role. But with hamstring, I feel like it has to if you have a, a poor structure of the foot, you know, and the, the joints of the foot. All right, man, so you painted an awesome picture um, in regard to, you know, what you do for your players to maintain their hamstring health throughout the season. And you mentioned that some of the other disciplines within your sports medicine staff, you mentioned their importance in your return to play protocol. So can you just touch on the relationships you have with those other disciplines and the importance of everybody's role in providing optimal care for your athletes within the Reds organization? The coolest part of my role this year and being the rehab guys, the group that I get to work with on a daily basis. So it's myself. We've got two PTs on staff. We've got a full-time dietitian as well as our uh, mental skills coaches. And so what we've started doing this year is we call it a rehab roundtable where a guy gets hurt. He gets essentially entered into rehab. We have a meeting with that player and all of us. Each one of us writes down our current goals for the player, and he writes down his goals in each one of those different categories. We all discuss it. He signs the paper at the end. Boom. Now he's held accountable to what's expected of him. Um, And it's been a really good way of keeping guys on track, letting them know where they stand, and that rehab is not this dark, endless purgatory, that there is light at the end of the tunnel, but you just got to keep checking off these goals along the way. So that's, that's really been enjoyable. And I think it, it makes for a much more well-rounded um, process. Do you guys seem to buy into that pretty well, into that approach? Surprisingly, they do. They've really, especially these guys that have been chronic rehabbers, um, and now all of a sudden this is the first time where they feel like they have a say in their rehab. It's not just like, hey, here's your, your shoulder exercises for the day and then go hit the gym. It gives them a little bit more of ownership of what they're doing on a daily basis. That's an awesome approach. When you give guys that say or that independence, essentially, it's just like putting myself in their shoes. I can see that that'd be more a lot easier to buy into than just getting a sheet of paper and getting sent on my way, you know? So it's interesting to hear. I like that approach. So in, in regard to hamstring education, do you have any good resources that maybe they could tap into? If you're into podcasts, I really like the Pacey Performance Podcast. Uh, they do a really good job on that one, talking to people from all over. In particular, episodes 243 and 248 are very hamstring-oriented. Jack Hickey and Ryan Timmons, they're, uh, they're two of the guys doing a lot of the leading research on hamstrings coming out of Australia. Even more, if you just want to dive in and do a little Google search with those names, they'll pop up some papers. And Jack Hickey's the one who came up with the, uh, the VAS of under four. That guy's really on top of what he's doing right now, and that's where I would send people. So there you go. There's your resource for all you hamstring nerds. Uh, one thing that I, I wanted to ask that, that I didn't bring up whenever we were talking about the training protocols, plyometrics. Does the research say anything about plyos, or do you think that they have a, a purposeful place in your program or your maintenance protocol? Uh, definitely, and that's another thing that we have put into our return-to-play protocols. So uh, once a guy starts doing his submax running progressions, he's also doing submax plyo progressions because really running is just a different version of a plyometric. So we want to build up those capacities in our athletes as well. 
because we feel that it gives them a very good chance to be explosive and athletic. So really very basic guidelines on that would be low before high, double leg before single leg. I mean, we'll even start guys with jump rope. That's really like a very yeah. low level plyo yeah. before you're getting to something like uh, a depth jump off a box. Yeah. And do you have guys, you have guys jump to the box before doing a depth drop, I'm assuming, correct? Yeah. Correct. Yep. And in and, and regard to volume, uh, we didn't really get into volume, but like, so let's say a guy's doing his Nordics, he's doing his RDLs. Like what kind of volume are, are you prescribing? I know load's going to be really relative to the athlete, but if, in regard to volume, how do you manage that really at any time of the year? Yeah. So there was a Seagrave paper that came out a while back on hamstrings and baseball. And what they found is as little as three and a half reps a week of Nordics was enough to maintain that hamstring health. I like to expand that a little bit, maybe say two sets of four. If you're in season and you're trying to keep volume low, and then in the off season, we're working up to three sets of five, four sets of five. Um, but really the big thing to note here is that you have to continually progress the Nordics. So after two weeks of, say you were doing it at body weight and four sets of five was challenging and now it's pretty easy. Well, after two weeks, your strength is going to stay the same, but you're actually going to lose that eccentric length. It's going to return back down to baseline unless you start adding a, an outside stimulus like five or 10 pounds to yourself while doing the Nordic. That becomes challenging. So it's really like a never-ending progression on that exercise where you just have to keep continually challenging the muscles. I love everything that you're getting into here because it's all evidence-based. I would have never thought three and a half reps per week is enough. I would have never thought that. I'm like two by five, three by five guy, three by four. But that's interesting what you say about the progressive load, how it's like a never ending thing. You can maintain your strength, but lose the length. At what point do you feel like, like, do you ever stop loading a guy? You're like, okay, like you're efficient. Or do you just continually keep loading to get that effect that you were just talking about? Yeah, so that's where we can start playing with stuff. You know, you can uh, you can have, a, if you're having the guy do it two days a week, maybe that second day is more of a dynamic effort. So you've got him with a band. He's doing a set of 10, but he's doing them fast. Or you're working in RDLs or kettlebell swings, something a little bit more dynamic and explosive, but you're still hitting that musculature. Because really, we don't want to overly fatigue those muscles um, if the guy is still out there running every night. Yeah, that's where you can have fun as a coach and play a little bit. Assistance, exactly. resistance, change your modalities, your, your accommodating resistance. Good stuff, man. Will, this was awesome information. And again, thank you for taking the time to do this. If anybody wants to follow your content on Instagram, what's your handle and you know where can they find you? Yeah, on, on Instagram, it's uh, Will underscore Gilmore underscore Reds. Uh, that's the easiest place to follow me right there. I, I check that a decent amount during the week and try and put up some good content every now and then trying to to share some information. So yeah, I'd say that's the best place. All right, man. Well, again, Will, I appreciate your time and, and thank you for the awesome content. Of course, Alex had a really fun time doing this, man. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the PRST podcast. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a follow and leave a review. You can also find my content on Instagram and Twitter where my handle is PRST underscore PT. And you can also check out my website, agprst.weebly.com. Thanks for tuning in. Podcasting is gaining more traction each day, and the beauty is anyone can do it and it will cost you next to nothing to start your own show. I've gotten the opportunity to speak with individuals around the world that share my same passion for sports performance, and I've been able to share my message globally. Without my show, none of those opportunities are possible. Buzzsprout is the hosting website I use to launch my show. 
With Buzzsprout, you'll get a website that you can link your social media accounts to to promote your episodes. You can track your show's stats. They list your show in all major podcast directories like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And most importantly for me, is anytime I've had an issue or simply needed help figuring something out on their site, I reached out to them and they've always gotten back to me that same day to help me resolve the issue. So if you're thinking about starting your own show, I highly recommend using Buzzsprout as your hosting website. If you'd like to learn more, follow the link in the show details or reach out to me directly and I'd be happy to help.